This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. The most memorable interviews and listener calls from the week that was on Fight Back with Libby Snymer. Welcome to the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown. Good afternoon. Welcome to the Sunday edition of the Best of Fight Back. More of what you want to hear from the week that was. We have long been warned about a looming shortage of nurses, or at least a larger shortage than we are facing now, as many leave the profession because of the difficulties and stress of working through COVID and issues with working conditions and compensation. In Quebec, the provincial government there is offering bonuses of up to $18,000. And we've just learned more about what's behind these lump sum payments. There is a COVID vaccine mandate in Quebec. And at this point, 17,000 healthcare workers are still unvaccinated and could be facing suspension in a couple of weeks. Could the same scenario play out here? On Wednesday, Libby was joined by Dr. Doris Grinspun, CEO of the Registered Nurses Association of Ontario, to discuss. I think Quebec is doing the right thing in the sense that they're doing a province-wide approach. I think you will see when the deadline comes, you will see my hunch, at least a third of them vaccinated, if not more. Um, At the end of the day, Libby, we are here to take care of people that uh, require health services. They're not going to a, sh- to a mall to shop, and they need to be protected from this deadly virus because it's deadly. And healthcare workers, our first duty is to no harm. So the province in Quebec is doing the right thing, and it's what we are asking Premier Ford to do. I've uh, looked at some of the numbers from Ontario. Now, in, in Ontario, of course, it's a total hodgepodge, right? Because each, the, the, the provincial mandate uh, it doesn't really mandate vaccinations. And Correct. it's up to each hospital, and some hospitals have banded together, and they have different deadlines. And I've looked at the numbers of, of people that are unvaccinated, and it, it doesn't look like there's any way it's going to add up to... 18, no, really, no, and in part it's because we have taken, as you know, this approach that our duty is to get fully vaccinated unless we have a medical exemption, which should be as restrictive as the one for the passport, which is very little, right? Um, and the duty is that we need to protect ourselves so we protect patients, and that's where it starts, that's where it ends. So we have been very supportive of the hospitals that have taken a stand on it. We are being very supportive of nursing home. We wish all of them will do. And in fact, we're asking the premier that he should, you know, um, he should take the courage. He should have the courage that some of those CEOs are having, because in a sense, the premier is the CEO of this province, and he should have the courage to mandate across the board for all healthcare workers in all settings and sectors, and also for all educators. Why do you think, I mean, Quebec is next door. Uh, it, there is a, a, a little bit of a different culture there, but, you know, they're, they're Canadians like us. Why, why do you think this huge divergence in acceptance exists? Well, there are two diversions. One is in the approach of the premiers that over there he took a stand. And the other is 
the divergence of associations. I mean, we took a stand to support what the premier of Manitoba is doing. I tell you, if we were in Manitoba and supporting vocally that everybody needs to get fully vaccinated, uh, he will not have those numbers with all due respect to my colleagues there and to other associations there. They are doing the right thing for patients. And that's what comes first, Libby. This is, you know, we all believe, you too, I'm sure, as a, I believe as a feminist, my, my, my body, my choice, you know. But this is a pandemic. This is not about, you know, this is about the impact on the collective. And this is the impact on very vulnerable people, people that are requiring health services or people in the education sector that cannot even get vaccinated. They're under 12. So enough of this. And yes, there is a minority that is still hesitant. Remember, these are health professionals. They practice based on evidence. So... The hesitancy is the minority. The majority is my body, my choice, and all those issues that I respect in times of no pandemic and related to anything that relates to no pandemic, not on a pandemic. Dr. Doris Grinspun, CEO of the Registered Nurses Association of Ontario. This is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. Here in Ontario, it's up to hospital administrators to make the rules around COVID vaccination for their employees, which means the requirement is different from hospital to hospital. Hundreds of unvaccinated staff are still working in GTA hospitals, even as those who run other health care centers in Ontario have already begun suspending employees who refuse their COVID shots. At UHN, everyone needs to be fully vaccinated against COVID by October 22nd. If they don't have the shots by then, they will have made the decision that they will no longer be working at UHN as they are not in compliance with UHN's policy for mandatory vaccination for COVID-19. At Sunnybrook and Mount Sinai, Unvaccinated staff may continue to work if they agree to testing, which is as far as the governing Ford PCs will go. At the same time, Windsor Regional Hospital is one of the places where unvaccinated workers have already been suspended. Libby was joined on Wednesday by Dr. Alon Vaisman, infectious diseases and infection control physician at the University Health Network, and Windsor Regional Hospital CEO David Mouche. As we stand now, I mean, we're at 97.3% of our staff, uh, which includes our employees and professional staff, are vaccinated or following the policy. So on September 22nd, we had to um, suspend um, or put on a two-week unpaid leave 140 employees and seven professional staff. That number is already down to 113 in total meaning um, some 27 more have complied with the policy since uh, taking the two weeks um, unpaid. And uh, the, at October 7th at 12.01 a.m., um, if they are not uh, started the vaccination campaign, then the remaining employees and professional staff will be uh, terminated or their privileges will be uh, terminated as of that time. So uh, overall, clearly the positive comments from the community far outweigh the negative comments. Um, however, unfortunately, there are some in our communities that 
are using this as if you want to use the word the hill to die on is they are going to fight the need for vaccination regardless of what ourselves and UHN's data shows regarding the chances of uh, acquiring COVID in the first place. Uh, you know, unvaccinated or vaccinated, the chance of being hospitalized in the ICU or ultimately passing away are far greater for those unvaccinated than those vaccinated. And regardless of those statistics, they're going to, like I said, this is the hill they're going to they're going to die on, which is uh, we have to move forward. Yeah, Dr. Vaisman, I mean, uh, UHN has its own policy. The date uh, is different. It's October 22nd. And even though, you know, your percentage is high, uh, you know, in a raw number, there are lots of unvaccinated people. It's about 550 unvaccinated staff and 200 with an unknown vaccination status. I don't even know how you have an unknown vaccination status, but um, what do you think of that number? I'm sure you're missing that number when you're providing care. Yeah, that's right. So the number that you're saying, it's true, although we have a very high proportion that does account because UHN is large, does account for a large number of individuals. But that number is coming down. So hopefully as we get closer and closer to the deadline, we'll see more and more staff uh, being vaccinated. And we are doing a lot as an institution to try to address the concerns of frontline staff about the vaccination, providing education, uh, any kind of form of face-to-face or online or virtual discussion with staff. So hopefully we that number does come down. As for the unknown, um, you know, we don't know exactly why that is. It might be some individuals who are no longer with the institution who have not reported. So we, we are clarifying that as well. It seems from the province they eventually come around, but late. So is is it not a bit late for even if they do decide to put in a province-wide mandate? It, right now, I mean, luckily, as I mentioned, the cases have come down. This wave that we just saw across August and September was very small. So luckily, by virtue of just the vaccination rates being high in the community, we didn't have to, we didn't experience a very significant wave. But it does buy us a little bit of time for the province to do the right thing and mandated across the board in all the healthcare facilities. So certainly they are late to the game, but it's not too late to make the decision. Another thing we've learned from COVID, it's never too late. So it's the time is now um, and the time is right to do this and it's the right thing to do. And we have to remember over 80% of our population is vaccinated. The vast majority of individuals support this and they are comforted knowing that when they come to a hospital, the staff they're sitting in front of is double vaccinated plus 14 days. It doesn't eliminate the risk, but it greatly reduces it. Windsor Regional Hospital CEO David Mouche and Dr. Alon Vaisman, infectious diseases and infection control physician at the University Health Network. I'm Jane Brown, and this is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. Coming up after the break, truth and reconciliation. Will we get there? You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Good isn't good enough. Make way for the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. Thursday, September 30th, was Canada's inaugural National Day for Truth and Reconciliation. For many Canadians, the discovery of unmarked graves on the grounds of former residential schools was shocking, but also an incentive 
to know more about what led to that horrible truth. When did it start? How did residential schools roll out across the country? And what has been the impact to this day? On the National Day for Truth and Reconciliation, Libby Snymer was joined by a panel of experts. Dr. Don Martin-Hill, Associate Professor and a founder of the Indigenous Studies Program at McMaster University. Dr. Veldon Coburn, Professor of Aboriginal Studies at the University of Ottawa. And Dr. Pam Palmiter, a lawyer and professor and chair in Indigenous Governance at Ryerson University. Well, I'm hoping that Canadians are intentional about this day and use it as an opportunity not just to learn more and reflect on what happened in residential schools, but to actually take up the call to do something, to take action, because every Canadian benefits from the historic and ongoing dispossession and oppression of Indigenous peoples. Residential schools were a significant part of it, but the underlying policy behind residential schools has never ended. And that's why we have a foster care crisis, a crisis of Indigenous kids in youth corrections, uh, over-incarceration of Indigenous adults, like you name it. Everything is tied to that same policy, which was about separating and destroying our communities. Dr. Veldon Coburn, uh, what about you? What are your hopes? In in recent times, I've lost hope that... um the government of this time, in, in our current moment, um, will this will resonate with them. But I'm more hopeful for, you know, people in our community, our neighbors, the people that you know marry into our families that we've become families with and kin, that they take notes of this. That it's something that shapes this particular generation. They raise another generation in the truth, rather than um, and and those people that might have their their hands close to the levers of power eventually. But it, I'm, I'm less hopeful that. Um, uh, current governments will, you know, wake up to the truth today. Um, even especially because of disappointing news of the last day or so. But um, uh, yeah, I'm hopeful for the future, and um, and for the people who are on the ground and not walking in the halls of power here in Ottawa and in the um, provincial capitals as well. And Dr. Darn Martin Hill, what are your hopes? Um, my hopes, uh, first of all, is is that the survivors that in our families and in our communities finally receive the the support and recognition for the horrors that they they experienced or their parents or grandparents experienced and the impact that's had with Indigenous families. Um, and I'm hopeful that Canadians will uh, start to realize the history of their country, um, understanding a genocide did take place, there is a continued assault on Indigenous people, whether it's land back here at Six Nations, the uh, brutality towards our people trying to save water, uh, trying to save the environment, and, and that we're not these um, outliers. We're, not, we're trying to help all Canadians understand, you know, some of the errors of their ways and thinking that they continue to. Um, brutalized Indigenous people who are simply trying to uh, claim lands that belong to them and and preserve the waters for future generations and and, and go beyond just learning about one aspect, one incredibly horrible aspect, but understanding there was sterilization of Indigenous women in this country. There was a eugenics committee in 1928-1934 in Alberta, and it's continued to this very day. 
Um, Canadians need to really look at what is their government doing, why are they doing it, and how you vote matters. That's my hope. I think um, it, it, a new era is understanding the real history of, of this country and how to transform those relationships. The goal is, you know, justice in all spheres. And so I hope Canadians, this may be what spurs them, you know, the finding of these children. But there are many buried bodies across this country um, that allowed this country to have the resources and riches that it has. And we seek justice. Dr. Pam Palmiter, a lawyer and professor and chair in Indigenous Governance at Ryerson University. Dr. Don Martin-Hill, associate professor and a founder of the Indigenous Studies Program at McMaster University. And Dr. Veldon Coburn, professor of Aboriginal Studies at the University of Ottawa. Fightback's panel of experts on the National Day for Truth and Reconciliation. This is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. As a fallout from the recent federal election, 51 incumbents lost their seats or decided not to run again, which means they qualify for a severance check worth half their salary, just under $93,000 or more if they were a cabinet minister or chaired a committee. The Canadian Taxpayers Federation estimates this could be as high as $3.3 million, plus $1.4 million a year for those who qualify for pensions. To discuss the issue, Libby was joined by Franco Terrazano, federal director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. Yeah, you know, when we when we put these numbers out every every time after the election, they're always eye popping and, and it's always one conclusion that really lands with us and it's that us taxpayers, we shouldn't be shedding too many tears for these politicians who end up losing in the election because they're gonna be landing themselves a either a big severance check or big pension payments. And you know, you ran through the overall numbers where the severances are gonna cost us more than three million dollars. That the MPs that are going to be collecting the pension, well, that's going to cost us about $1.4 million every single year. But let me dive into some of the nitty-gritty, so to speak. There's going to be 10 former members of Parliament who served for less than two years who still end up collecting more than $92,000 in severance. There's also 16 former members of Parliament who, who will receive more than a million dollars in pension income if they continue to collect that pension to age 90. And there's also four members of Parliament who will be gathering and collecting more than $100,000 every single year in pension income. So we are paying a lot of money for these members of Parliament when they're actually serving, and we're also paying a ton of money once they retire or lose. Here's one thing that I I think is most likely to to bug people is that it's one thing to get severance if you're if you're uh, tossed from your job, but people who decide on their own not to run again, they qualify for the severance too. Why is that? Well, that's a huge that's a great question and it's it's one of the reasons that we're calling uh for reforms here to make these politicians pay and pensions and benefits affordable for taxpayers because they're not right now and and they're not given a few different contexts. The first context that we have to remember is that it's us Canadian taxpayers who are paying for these bills and it's really us Canadian taxpayers who've been struggling for the last year and a half. So many in the private sector have lost their job, have taken a pay cut or, or may have saw their small business closed down before their very eyes. And 
the second point piece of context that we have to remember is that the federal government is up to its eyeballs in debt. The federal government is a trillion dollars in debt. So, so given that context, um, certainly we should see some leadership from the top and willingness from politicians to reform their pay and pension to be more affordable for what taxpayers can pay. And, you know, another thing that I'll just throw out there again, which which to me uh, was extremely eye-popping, was the fact that there was 10, 10 former members of Parliament who served for less than two years who will still be pocketing $92,900 in severance. You have to get your party's nomination. You have to run. Uh, you have to door knock and and do all those things. I mean, uh, you know, it's 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 not necessarily such an easy task. Though once you're in there, uh, you may be able to stay in there without doing very much, <laughs> Franco. You know, I think there's I think there's there's both fair ways to reform the system. I really do. Uh, Talking about pensions, benefits, and pay. I mean, in terms of pensions, we have to uh, get away from these defined benefit pensions that in the private sector has has become so rare and move to a more matching RRSP-style pension for these members of parliament. That would be fair for them and much more affordable for taxpayers. In terms of pay, I think the first step is is let's just reverse these pandemic pay raises. They should have never seen their pay go up uh, during COVID-19. That would be the first step is to reduce or to reverse those pandemic pay raises. And when it comes to severance, let's remember that the people who are getting a severance, it's only either because they're under the age of 55 or because they haven't served for six years. So with the federal government more than a trillion dollars in debt, with taxpayers struggling all across Canada, removing the severance should be doable. Franco Terrazano, federal director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation, in conversation with Libby Snymer. I'm Jane Brown, and you're listening to the best of Fight Back. Coming up, what you had to say about the week that was and the Fight Back knockout call of the week. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Zoomer Radio, pulling no punches with the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown. Fight Back with Libby Snymer brings you comprehensive coverage of the news stories that interest you and your reaction to them on the phones. Here are some of this week's best calls. Bill in Toronto phoned about severance payouts for former members of Parliament. It kind of makes me laugh listening to these numbers. You know, you look at Maria Monsas, um, all she really had was a bachelor's science degree, really no accomplishments in life. And she actually stated on uh, when she was on a Zoom call that she was making a quarter million a year as a, an MP. or a, a She's minister. a minister. She yeah. was a minister. Yeah. So, I mean, that's just way above her... Uh, her pay grade, as far as I'm concerned. It's incredible that people that are this unserious get this kind of serious money. People work a lifetime and don't get these deals. April in Mississauga called to explain the efforts it took for her son to vote in the federal election. My son is a resident of long-term care, and he had a voting card to vote in within the building. Monday when I went looking for the polling station, the staff in the long-term care said to me, well, we don't have a polling station. And they said, well, Elections Canada told us they can't put anybody in here because they don't have anybody that's double vaccinated. 
that could come in and be the polling person. So what happened was, after about an hour and a half of me showing my displeasure with everything, the the staff went and got the the Schlegel Village van and took it and got it out, and we got my son on the van, and we went all the way down Sheridan Mall, which is quite a little ways from here, and we took him in the door. Well, then then it started. Well, you're not supposed to be here. You're supposed to be at 6.03. And I said, well, I told them the story. There isn't any 6.03 now. So then we had to get a transfer paper filled out. This was after being sent from A to B to C to D. And he said, I would have to vouch for him because he didn't have any photo ID. And he wasn't in the right spot. But, of course, there wasn't any spot. So, anyway, the girl, in they, they finally got the two papers filled out, and then they sent us over to a polling booth, and he voted. This was now 3.30, and we'd started at 2 o'clock, and I had started at 11 a.m. to try and figure out how I could get him to vote. And now, Fightback's Knockout Call of the Week. There were a lot of great calls this week, but the winner of the Fightback Knockout Call of the Week comes from Jim in Pickering, who phoned on the first National Day for Truth and Reconciliation. What a somber day, and it is in our schools, and it's been normalized. It's in our churches as well, and our religion. And you know, Libby, uh, so I, I just want to know why we're not hearing from these religious organizations that ran the institutions that would be maybe the only ones that know how those children got in those graves, what happened, right? Where are the records, right? And I'm not looking for an apology. I'm just looking for the truth, as in truth and reconciliation. That does it for this week's Best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. If you'd like to qualify for the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week, phone us noon to one weekdays. Or if you have a comment, email us at fightback at zoomer.ca. Follow us on Twitter at Fightback Libby and call our Fight Back voicemail anytime at 416 367 9636. I'm Jane Brown. Join us again next weekend when we'll round up the best of Fight Back. The best of Fight Back is produced by Jane Brown, Justin Eacock, and Zeev Hadi, with technical production by Kelly Robotham. Executive producer, Moses Nimer. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.